This is Poetry Off the Shelf from the Poetry Foundation. I'm Curtis Fox. This week, a popular poet from Russia where poetry is actually pretty popular. Я вас любил, любовь еще быть может. In Russia, nearly everyone knows a few poems by heart. The language rhymes easily, and kids in school are reciting poetry before they even know how to read or write. And then there's Pushkin, the poet who died in a duel almost 200 years ago, but who lives on in the national psyche. So poets, after the revolution of 1917, were figuring out what to do. Some got out of the country as fast as they could. Many were conflicted. Mandelstam, for instance, or Pasternak. But one poet was unabashedly on board, Vladimir Mayakovsky. Mayakovsky was a futurist performance artist who loved the hum of mills and laboratories and delivered his verses on the factory floor in front of thousands of workers. But can you really address a crowd with poetry? Helena de Groot, a producer who lives in New York, looked into this question. Vladimir Mayakovsky was a striking man. Tall, unsmiling, with deep-set eyes, full lips and sunken cheeks, made even more dramatic when he decided to shave his skull. I suspect that it was a kind of um, futurist streamlining for the romantics, the poet wrote write by candlelight. For the futurist Mayakovsky, the poet should be writing by a naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling. Their shaved heads perhaps re- resembled naked light bulbs. This is Val Vinikor, a Jewish Russian-American poet and translator. He was born in Moscow during the Brezhnev years, but in 1978, with the economy down and anti-Semitism up, his mother and grandmother decided to move to the United States, taking six-year-old Val Vinikor with them. Vinikor never much liked the poet of the revolution, as Mayakovsky was called. He seemed too cozy with the Soviet regime. Why else would there be a Mayakovsky subway station in Moscow and statues in a square? It was only later, when Vinikor started translating him and really inhabiting his words, that he felt something shift. It was enormously liberating because I could be someone else. I could uh, have um, more bravado than I normally have. Especially on stage in front of a large crowd, Mayakovsky was magnetic. He would always stand with his legs spread apart. Often he would have one hand on his hip, ramrod straight, recite poems in front of groups of thousands of workers and tell them, you know, shh, my little kittens, settle down, settle down. Much of his charisma came from his booming voice. Take his poem about the sun, the extraordinary adventure that happened to Vladimir Mayakovsky one summer on a dacha. There's not a whole lot left of Mayakovsky's original swagger on these old, creaky tapes. So I asked Velvinikor to do his best. Sunset swarmed in 140 suns as summer rolled into July. There was the heat, the swimming heat. This all happened in the country. Right? It's, it's, it's almost a little ridiculous, but there's a real range there too. I thought that this poem, because it begins, listen to me, exclamation point, 
would sound much like Extraordinary Adventure. But the recording that I heard was something like this. Listen to me, if stars are lit, doesn't that mean someone needs it? Doesn't that mean someone wants them to be? Doesn't that mean someone calls these spittles pearls? It's just pleading, it's almost pathetic. And I was so moved and so surprised. She wasn't just this big blowhard. Mayakovsky believed with all the energy of a young radical that the country was ready for a new kind of poetry, for a wild ride through images and language, like his long monologue, Cloud in Pants. It's a love story, but it's also a diatribe against everything old, old art, old religion, old elites, written up in a vulgar, streetwise vernacular. It starts like this. Your thought lies dreaming on your mush of a brain, like an overfed lackey on a greasy couch as I rag on its bloody scrap of a heart until I've mocked my fill, nasty and smartass. Not one gray hair on my soul, and no old-school tenderness either. The world shakes with the thunder of my voice as I go forth, a beautiful 22-year-old. This is kind of what's going on here. It's like, don't you love me? Don't you love to hate me? I'm so young. I'm so beautiful. And you're so old and gross, right? Um, but what's interesting is how much of the Russian literary tradition he draws on and filters here. For example, like an overfed lackey on a greasy couch. I mean, that is a stock character from all of 19th century Russian literature, right? But if you've read any Dostoevsky, even the lowliest, craziest character like the underground man will have a lackey, usually on a greasy couch, right? So here he is comparing anyone in his audience who doesn't get it to this kind of vulgar, overfed lackey. But at the same time, he's drawing on this venerable um, literary and cultural tradition. Was he the first Russian poet to make as a topic you know, sort of the lowly, the greasy, the mushy? I think that Russian poetry wrote about the dregs, but uh, with a view to elevating them, Mayakovsky is, he's just in the dregs, right? He's not uh, trying to uh, suggest that uh, the dregs are some kind of mystical symbol. You know, he's just saying, this is where I live, this is where the people live, and there's poetry in these dregs themselves. But the very people he was writing for, the workers, often didn't care for all of his innovations. He had done some readings where students and workers kind of challenged him, and he was somebody who was chafing against the constraints of um, the socially and politically useful poetry that the regime was demanding. When the first poet was arrested and executed in 1921, every other artist in the Soviet Union knew what that meant. The days of artistic freedom and experimentation were over. Mayakovsky tried to change, tried to write useful poems about the opening of a mine or the newly founded Soviet Air Force. But his reputation as an avant-garde poet kept haunting him. An article appeared on the front page of Pravda, the party newspaper, with the headline, Enough of Mayakovskyry. By 1930, he was out of fashion. His readings were poorly attended, hardly anyone showed up to his plays, and party officials made sure that no publisher would have him. 
One morning in April of 1930, Mayakovsky shot himself in the chest. The regime was mostly silent for five years. Then, on the fifth anniversary of his suicide, there was a statement from Stalin himself. Mayakovsky was and remains the best and most talented poet of our Soviet epoch. Indifference to his memory and to his work is a crime. And then immediately everybody said, oh, Mayakovsky is the greatest. He's the poet of the revolution. And, you know, all of these subway stations began to be named for him and right, all, all of that. So it's sort of a strange story, uh, the co-optation of uh, Mayakovsky. Once he was dead, Stalin could use him as uh, whatever kind of symbol he wanted. But you can see Stalin's anxiety and respect for the power of poetry and the power of poets. He knew it's not an accident that he was killing so many of them. Today, poetry does not seem to instill much fear in the hearts of our leaders. We're in a culture where most average people don't read poetry at all. So how do you, how do you speak to them? Uh, I can't draw the kinds of crowds that Mayakovsky draws. Nobody can. That's the funny thing. Even if, you, if you're a Nobel Prize winner, you're not going to, you know, and, and I'm sorry, even if you're a Nobel Prize winning poet and you're reading in front of a thousand people at the 92nd Street Y, it's not the same thing as Mayakovsky reading before 10,000 workers, right? Uh, that just doesn't really happen anymore unless you're a rapper, right? Right, like Kendrick Lamar. The whole world gone mad. Bodies is adding up. Markets about to crash. Donald Trump is a chump. Know how we feel, punk. I prophesized on my last song. You laughed at me. But when the shit get bracket, don't you ask for me. Today, these sermons, delivered not from the top of any mountain, but from the streets, are nothing new. But they were in Mayakovsky's time. And his example inspired many poets. Take Val Vinicor, who, in his own poetry, looks at things like reality television, gentrification, Facebook. I asked him why. I have sympathy for the crap of modernity. It is vulgar and depressing, but it's also sad and funny. It has a kind of human face despite itself. Uh, and in a sense, it's also about the things themselves. I'm not necessarily trying to judge them or dignify them or put them down. I'm just trying to see them. Is it a Yogi Bearism? You know, you can observe a lot of things by looking, right? <laughs> it's sort of, right? That's just really sort of what it's about for me. And maybe for Mayakovsky too. To capture every part of modern life, no matter how low or cruel or ugly. Like in his poem about a horse that slips and falls on an icy street and the people around who start laughing. And uh, for anyone who has... Uh, read any Russian literature, certainly Dostoevsky, you'll know that the motif of the injured or fallen or beaten horse being whipped on its meek eyes, on its meek eyes, right? This kind of repetition appears everywhere as a kind of metaphor for Russia itself. So Mayakovsky is playing with a very venerable tradition here, as he often does. Uh, right, and this poem is from 1918, so, yeah, so this is a, literally about a workhorse in uh, the worker's city right after the revolution. Here is Vinokur reading his translation of that poem, Getting Along with Horses. Hooves struck, like song, clip, clop, clep, clup. 
The wind-stripped street, an ice-shod slide, a horse crashed on its rump, and right away, one slack jaw after another, came down Kuznetsky in bell-bottoms to have a look-see. Crowding round, a jingle-jangle of laughter. Horse fell! Fallen horse! All Kuznetsky Street laughed, except for me. I didn't mix my voice into that howl. I walk up, and I see the horse eyes. The street toppled over, flowing how it likes. I walk up, and I see drop from drop, rolling down its face, burrowing in its hide. And some kind of common animal anguish splashed and poured out of me and dissolved in a rustle. Horse, please, don't. Listen to me, horse. Do you think you're any less than they are? Little one, all of us are horses, sort of. Every one of us a horse in his own way. Maybe the old nag didn't need a nanny. Maybe she thought my notion seemed a little stale. But the horse gave a jerk, stood on its legs, neighed, and off she went, flicking its tail, chestnut, childlike, came home cheerful, stood in its stall, and the whole time she felt like a colt, and life was worth living and work worthwhile. So you don't have the horse being tortured. The horse is just old and overworked and just falls, and, but people are making fun of it. For Mayakovsky, that's the crime. And it's even more of a crime that this is happening in the worker's city. These people should know better. But Mayakovsky, the poet, he communes with the horse, right? The horse's tears are his tears, right? But I love the way that, that the sort of old-fashioned 19th century sentimentalism with which I identify wholeheartedly, actually. <laughs> you know? Every time that Dostoevsky describes the horse being whipped on its meek eyes, I'm right there wanting to burn the world over it, right? The bleeding heart liberals that we are. The bleeding heart liberals that we are, right? What kind of a world is this? All of that sentiment, that's still there, but then the horse kind of just, you know, sh shakes it off, <laughs> right? I'm not the object of your poetic literary pity. Chestnut, childlike, came home cheerful, I'm a worker, it's 1918, save it for another day, another horse. <laughs> so where does that leave Mayakovsky? Was he the poet of the masses, or did he stand alone, siding with the horse rather than the people? I asked Vinokur what he thought, and he pulled up a quote from filmmaker and Mayakovsky fan Michael Almereda. Mayakovsky liked company and crowds, but by definition he was a poet, an individual spending a great deal of time alone with language. And maybe this is how a poet sitting alone with language can reach every last one of us. Because let's be honest. What do people share? They're all lonely, <laughs> right? And the poet, perhaps most of all. Music in this program comes from the Claudia Quintet. The final piece of music in Helena's piece came from Alexander Paperny. For a poetry off the shelf, I'm Curtis Fox. Thanks for listening. <laughs>